Okay, we're going to continue looking at that uh, second Bible reading now. We're kind of going through that um, second part of chapter 1 and the parallel uh, stories of the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. And particularly today, we're going to be looking at those two songs by Jesus' mother Mary and John's father, Zechariah. And as I say, um, each week it'll be really helpful um, to get into a habit of having your Bibles um, with you, either your own that you bring from home or one that you can grab on the way in. I've got too many things up here at the moment, excuse me. Um, that'll help to um, follow along with the things that we're talking about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we spend this time in your word, you will fill us with a greater appreciation of the great salvation that you have won for us in Jesus, that we will want to celebrate what you've done for us, that we'll be all more grateful and thankful for it, and that we'll want to live in response to it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, uh, the most recent session of our uh, Christianity Explained course that we were running through the months of June and July. Um, we were doing it in the in the back uh, where the creche is uh, in sun, on Sunday afternoon while the band for the six o'clock service was getting ready. And so and 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 other than being you know quite loud, you could hear the real enthusiasm and joy uh, in the band as they're singing and as they're playing. And one of the people in the group in particular just had no experience, no background in Christian things, no contact with Christian people, and he was asking lots of questions, and one of the questions he asked was, why do Christians sing? You know, why, do you, why do you sing all the time? And, you know, what a great question to ask, right? We kind of take it for granted, and we're not going to go into that uh, all now, but isn't it remarkable how singing kind of enables us to express the things of the heart in a way that speaking, for example, doesn't quite Singing you know, enables us to express joy and sadness, but particularly as we think about joy and the things that we want to celebrate. We sing when we're happy, right? And so it makes me wonder, as we sing in church, is our singing in church an expression of that? The, the, the joy and thankfulness, the praise to God that we have because of what he's done for us. Because, you know, we'll only really rejoice as followers of Jesus if we appreciate the salvation that we have because of what he's done for us, that he's freely given us in Jesus. If, if we know what that is, if we love it, if we want to live for it. And I think these two songs that we're looking at in this chapter of Luke's Gospel today, Mary's song and Zechariah's song, really help us to see that and to want that for ourselves, that we have a salvation that is worth celebrating. So let's, uh, let's get into the first one of it, Mary's song. You can... You can hardly go past the fact that this is a song of celebrating, right? And Mary's in particular, have a listen to how she begins. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Do you hear the thankfulness? Do you hear the joy that is just bursting out of her as she sings? And she goes on in the very next line to say why she is so thankful. For he has been mindful, verse 48, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary knows that God has, has considered her lowly, humble estate. She sees herself like that. She sees herself as humble. 
and lowly and that God has done something for her in that. And so she is praising the God who raises the humble. Now, we're not really told what it is about Mary's state that she sees herself as humble and lowly. She's a, a young woman from a, a town in the middle of nowhere that has been ruled in a country that's been ruled over by powerful nations for centuries. Maybe that's part of it. But whatever it is, she recognises that God is now doing something that is changing all of that. From now on, she says, all generations will call me blessed because of what God is about to do through her. Now, she's talking about what we heard last week, about the promise that the angel Gabriel had made to her, that she would have a son called Jesus. He'll be great, the angel said in verse 32, and called the son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will rule over Jacob's descendants in a kingdom that will never end. See, Mary knows that God is about to do something remarkable, something that is unbelievably great, something of eternal significance. And he's chosen Mary to be involved in that. This humble girl from some backwater town in Galilee. And so from now on, she says, all nations will call me blessed. That God would give her such a remarkable place in what he is about to do. That's how she begins her song, but notice that as her song continues, what he's doing for Mary, she says, is an example of just what God does, what he has done, what he is doing for many people. That is, he's a God who raises the lowly, who raises the humble, and who brings down the proud and powerful. Let me read from verse 51 now. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. See, Mary sees herself in a long line of people who have benefited from the saving mercy of God. His powerful arm that performs mighty deeds for the sake of those who are low to save those who cannot save themselves. And what he's doing now, she sees, is entirely in character with what God has always done in the past. God is a God who raises up the humble to save them. And we're going to come back in a moment to talk a little bit more about this saving that God is doing now. But I want to pause here just to reflect on how highly God values Humility, how highly God values humility. That the God who saves, saves the humble. That it's the humble who God saves and lifts up. That it is the humble who, God, who trust God to save them. That's why Mary praises God, her saviour. You know, being saved does require a certain humility, doesn't it? Or, or at least appreciating being saved does. I remember recently on our family holiday, we went with extended family, I've, I've mentioned before, to Hawaii um, with cousins and aunts and uncles and so on. And one day I'd taken a bunch of the kids out to practice surfing. We'd hired a surfboard and we'd gone out. It was quite a long way out, over 100 metres out. And I had a bunch of the kids with me out there and they, one surfboard though, and so they're taking it in turns on the surfboard. And after a little while, a couple of the kids decided they'd had enough 
and that they wanted to go back in, but others wanted to stay out. So I stayed out with the others and, and two of them decided to swim back to the beach. And as I said, it was quite a long way. And about halfway back, one of them started to look like they were getting into a bit of trouble. And before long, a lifeguard came up on a jet ski, kind of zoomed up next to them and said, hey, do you want to ride back to the beach? And they said, no, no, we're okay, thanks, we'll be right. And so he left them and eventually they did make their way back to the beach. But I was talking about them with it after talking with them about it afterwards, and they said, actually, you know, we really did want to lift back to the beach. We were just too proud to say so. Being saved can be embarrassing sometimes. It's humiliating, humbling. Now that wasn't a desperate situation, but sometimes it is. Yeah, and we still don't want to acknowledge it. Like when I was saved at the beach, and, and uh, the, I really did need the lifeguard, but even then, I, I was embarrassed. You know, I didn't really need it. Just lucky he was going that way. Recognising that you need saving is a humbling experience. And the same goes for being saved by God. It means a shift in our thinking from, I don't really need God, you know, or I don't need him that much, to, yes, I'm in a position where I need God to save me and that I can only trust God to lift me up. It seems to me that a lot of people do want God to do something in their lives, but in a way that still thinks of the problem as being somewhat over there, as if God is you know, the housekeeper in my house. You know, it'd be great if you could fix things up a bit, you know, tidy, tidy the place up so I can get on with living in, in, in this space that I'm living in. But we're less comfortable, perhaps, with the suggestion that, no, actually, I need saving. That's what I need from God. It's a humbling realisation. But that's exactly what Mary says. God is a saviour, and he saves those who need saving, the humble and the lowly. And we'll only recognise that, or perhaps we'll only appreciate it and we'll only celebrate because of it, if we see ourselves like she saw herself, the humble and lowly who need a saviour. And we're going to come back to that later, but I want to shift now to the second song in this chapter, the song of Zechariah at the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Now, this is the first time that Zechariah has said anything for nine months. You might remember from last week he was struck dumb by the angel at the announcement that he would have a child. And now he finally, as they're celebrating the birth of this child, he finally opens his mouth to praise God when his son is born. But you know the surprising thing about this song is that it's barely about John, his son, at all. This is John's father singing at the birth of John, but I hadn't really noticed until this week, I think, that it's not really a song about John. It's about the salvation that God will bring through his Messiah. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. I'm going to read from verse 67 down to 70. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant. David, just as he said, so as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. 
God has raised up a horn of salvation through the house of his servant David. Like like Mary, Zechariah is singing about God as a saviour and the salvation that is now coming. But Zechariah kind of zooms in on it a bit more for us. And so he's praising God about this this saviour in the house of his servant David. And as I said, this kind of connects with what we've been reading in our in our non-sermon Bible readings, we just read a moment ago in 2 Samuel about King David. That's the David that he's talking about. And in particular, Zechariah's song is taking us back to 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David says he wants to build a house for God. By that he means a temple. But God has other ideas. See, at this time, David was established on his throne. He had peace from his enemies who had been attacking him. He was living in a proper house for the first time in quite a while after having been on the run and on the battlefield for a long time. But God was still living in a tent, so to speak. The ark of God was in a tent and, and, and David said, well, it's not right that, that I should be in a proper house and God's still camping, so to speak. And so he says, I want to build a house for God. But God says no, and it's kind of a play on words here because God says, I will build a house for you. Now, David means a building house. But when God says, I'll build a house for you, David, he means a dynasty, right? A line of descendants who will be kings after him, the house of David. And that's what happened. There was a house of David, a line of kings who were his descendants after him. But what happened is those kings turned away from God and so were overcome by their enemies. But just as things started to look really bad, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about a great king who would come from the house of David, from the line of David. And this is what he said from Isaiah chapter 9. And you might remember this from you know, Christmas Bible readings. It says this, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever." The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, that's not just talking about another king in a line of kings that had been happening so far. This is talking about a king to end all kings. A king in the line of David from the house of David who will rule on David's throne forever. He's talking about the Messiah. That's what the angel had said to Mary that we looked at last week in verse 32. And now Zechariah is picking it up again. A horn of salvation in the house of David. See, Zechariah is not singing about his son, John. He's singing about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, as it continues, you notice that John, Zechariah's son, does finally get a mention in verse 76. But even then, have a look at what he says about his son. What will his son do? His role, it says, is to prepare the way, to point the way to the one who will come after him, to the one who will bring that salvation. Let me read from 76 now. 
And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So this song looks like a celebration of the birth of John. The closer you look at it, it's actually a celebration of Jesus. Like imagine you're at a, at a birthday party. I was at a birthday party last night. And as you do at birthday parties, we sang happy birthday. Imagine if you're, it's your birthday and everyone sings happy birthday to someone else. It, doesn't, it sounds a bit unusual, doesn't it? But John doesn't mind. As John himself grew up, he says the same thing that his father Zechariah said, that his job was to prepare for someone greater for the coming of the Lord who will bring this salvation. That Zechariah and and, and the faithful of Israel, the the, the salvation that they were looking forward to. So what I want to do now, that's the salvation of, of the Messiah. I want to have a look at two things to finish, the nature of this salvation and the goal of this salvation. So firstly, what's the nature of this salvation that is coming? What will the Messiah do? So you notice in verse 70. 1 and 74, it says, He will save us from our enemies. And that I suspect that's exactly what you might expect, right? From a nation that has been conquered by their enemies and ruled by their enemies for hundreds of years. He will save us from our enemies. But then in verse 77, there's perhaps a surprising twist in what that looks like. Let me read from verse 77 down to 79 now. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, the salvation that the Messiah will bring, that John will prepare the way for, is about the forgiveness of sins. See, the problem that Israel had always had with their enemies was never about the size of their army. It was about the condition of their heart. God can save by many or by few. We've been hearing that in our 1 Samuel sermon series just recently. No matter how big the army is, God can save. What God's people needed was not a king who could lead their armies against their enemies. They needed someone who could forgive their sins. And that's what God gave them in Jesus. And this is so important that understanding that is actually really what Luke's gospel is about. You know, this orderly account that Luke has set about to write for Theophilus, we heard last week, and for us. That's what it's about. Remember, we talked about last week how Luke's goal was that Theophilus would know the certainty of the things he had been taught. And we talked a little bit last week about you know, being able to trust the things that, that we'd heard about Jesus. Theophilus would have known by now that Israel had rejected Jesus as their king. He would have known by now that the Romans had executed Jesus it hardly sounds like a victorious saviour. On its own, that might not sound like the, the promised Messiah that Israel were looking forward to. But Luke's goal is to show us that that's exactly what it is. Because salvation that he brings 
is the forgiveness of sins. Right through Luke's gospel, people keep having the wrong idea of what Jesus is going to do until finally at the end, Jesus explains it. Right at the end in chapter 24, verse 46, he says this. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and die, suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Not just for Israel, but for all nations, for all of us. That's what Jesus was always on about. And right back here at the beginning, before Jesus is even born, Zechariah foreshadows that in his prophetic song. And so if I could just reflect on that a little bit more as we come back to what we looked at in Mary's song, what is it that will help us to celebrate this salvation like Mary did? It's humility about ourselves, right? We'll hardly value this kind of saving unless we believe that we need it, right? Unless in our very hearts we have the kind of humility that recognises our need for forgiveness before God. And that's, that's hardly a popular line of thinking. It's not what we're trained to think in the rest of life. You know, we, we're told you're good and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Just be yourself. That's our world's mantra for a healthy self-image. And maybe it's just me, but the older I get and the more I get to know myself the more I realise just how not true that is and that I need a saviour because of what's in here. It's a humbling realisation. And so let me ask each one of us, do you believe that about yourself, that you need a saviour who can forgive sins today and every day of your life? It's humbling. That's how God wants us to come to him, humble and trusting in him and not trusting in yourself. And so what that can do for us then is it can make us rejoice, like Mary did, like Zechariah did, that God has provided for us exactly what we need, the Messiah who died and rose to forgive our sin. That's the nature of our salvation, forgiveness of sins, the goal of our salvation We're not going to be able to spend enough time on this, but this is what I want to talk about now. Verse 74 and 75. Have a look at this. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see the goal of our salvation there? Salvation from our enemies to serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness. See, our enemy is not, is not political, it's not social, it's not psychological. The Apostle Paul tells us the last enemy to be defeated is death. The power of death over us is our sin and that's what Jesus has taken away so that we don't need to fear now anything, any enemy up to and including death itself. And so if you are free from the fear of death, if that is no longer hanging like a spectre over all of your life, then you can 
serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. That is, have, have a think about it like this. If this 70 or 80 years or however long God gives you on in this life, if that's all there is, then you want to take hold of that with both hands, right? You need to make the most of it. You need to suck the marrow out of life, get the very best of it you can, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. You don't want to miss out. So grab what you can, fear of missing out, FOMO, that's how we live. Fear what you might miss because this life is all there is. But if you are freed from the power of death and the fear that goes with that, that final enemy, then you are freed to live for something else. You are free to live to serve God in holiness and righteousness. There is no better thing that you might miss out on that could stop you from living your life for God now. And what that means is that the salvation that Jesus has won for us is not an invitation to sit on our hands and just to do nothing or just to get on with life as if nothing has happened, or, or an encouragement to care less about my life or my sin because God will forgive me anyway. That's not what we're saved for. It means we're free now to serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness. We're free to, to choose radical love for the sake of others because I know I am saved. It means we're free to choose godliness, even at the ridicule of friends and family. You know, when everyone else is doing this and saying, this is what you should be doing, but you say, actually, no, God wants me to do this, and so that's what I'm going to do. This is what frees us to make costly choices in the name of Jesus. Like when people move to another country entirely so they can tell people about Jesus there, like our Link Missionary Partners have done. Like when people choose a life of singleness so that they can devote their life to serving God. Or like choosing this job instead of this job because this one will help you to be more godly or it'll help you to use your time, your money, your energy to serve him in other ways. Or just choosing how you spend your time on the weekend or in retirement that is less self-serving and more God-serving. You see how this salvation through the forgiveness of sins gives a whole new perspective on life. Not an invitation just to be passive, to not care about sin, but a freedom to serve God. So let me finish with these questions. Is that the salvation that you know for yourself? Do you humbly know your need for that salvation? And so are you rejoicing in the goodness of it? And is it giving you the freedom to serve God in holiness and righteousness? Because that's the only salvation that we need and that provides the forgiveness of sins that God has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will give us a clear recognition of our need before you and as a result, a wonderful rejoicing in the goodness that you have provided exactly what we need. Father, may that transform our understanding of life, free us from the power of the fear of death that hangs over this life because we know that Jesus has conquered death.
in his death and resurrection for us. And may that free us to serve you in all kinds of ways. May we be marked by serving you in holiness and righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.